We are picking up where we left off the last time we were together, and we're looking at Exodus chapter 15. As you are turning there, I'll just remind you, if you were not with us, that the last time we were together, we looked together at God's deliverance of Israel through the Red Sea. The Exodus is now complete. All of the preparations leading up to it, the calling of Moses, the preparing of Moses, the sending of Moses back into Egypt with Aaron, the plagues that God sent on the Egyptians and on Pharaoh, the finally God having Pharaoh drive the Israelites out on account of that 10th plague, and then God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh and Egypt pursuing Israel as they had went out and God positioning Israel between the wilderness and the sea, And then God, through that mighty deliverance, parting the waters through Moses' rod and then destroying his enemies, even as he has delivered his people. Uh, The exodus is complete. And now we could say we are about to embark on act two of the exodus. There are really three acts in the book of Exodus. There is the exodus itself, the deliverance out of Egypt. There is God bringing his people to Sinai, where he's going to give them his law in the Mosaic economy. And then there is, in the third place, the instructions about the tabernacle and the filling of the tabernacle with God's glory. Those are the three acts of this book, the Exodus, Sinai, and the tabernacle. And in between the Exodus and Sinai, we find what we find tonight in Exodus chapter 15. And we're going to look together at verse 1. Down through verse 21, Exodus 15, 1 to 21, which is simply noted in most of our Bibles, the song of Moses. And now, God having delivered his people, we read these words. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord, and that is Yahweh, the covenant Lord, is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his horse he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. 
The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of God endures forever. Well, probably almost two decades ago, I was working in a uh, workplace in which my boss was an extremely antagonistic unbeliever. And after one Easter Sunday, probably around 2003 or 2004, she came into work and she uh, made a point of coming to me and telling me that she had gone to her mother's very small Southern Baptist church on Easter Sunday. And she very mockingly said to me, as we all sang there, everybody kind of rocked back and forth and they just sang very half-heartedly. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. And she said to me, if they really believe that, why don't they sing like they do? I'll never forget that. I was a young Christian And this extremely antagonistic woman said, if they really believe that, why do they sing as though they don't believe that? That has stuck with me over the years because I have been in congregations where Christians have sang very dispassionately. They have sang very half-heartedly. They have almost spiritualized their dryness and deadness. Now, when we think about singing God's praises and we do it every Lord's Day and we do it in small groups and we do it in other settings in the church, we realize it is an integral part of what we do as believers. Our God has commanded us to sing praises to him. He has not only commanded us to sing praises to him, he has commanded us to sing loud praises to him. In fact, he has told us, even if all you know how to do is make noise, that you are to sing a joyful noise to the Lord. Oftentimes, that's all I do, is sing loud noise to God. And I like to imagine as we come to really what is the first song in the scriptures, the song of Moses, it's the first time that God has given us a song, and it's the first time we really see the central place of praise in Scripture. It's not in the Psalter. It's in the Song of Moses. Um, it's not a creation, even though we're told that the angels do break forth into joy, Job tells us, as they, they saw God commanding and creating. And yet God has reserved the place of praise to this place in redemptive history, to the very place where he has brought his people out of Egypt 
With a strong arm and an outstretched hand, he has destroyed their enemies, and he has given them this song. Now, the Song of Moses is a redemptive song. Uh, It is built on the very fact of redemption. That is instructive enough to us that uh, what should our praises be filled with? They should be filled with songs of praise to God for redemption. That is the big overarching point of the Song of Moses. In fact, this song is so important that when we come to the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 15, we're going to read about the saints in glory singing the Song of Moses and of the Lamb. So from Exodus chapter 15 to Revelation 15, the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb bookend all the praises of the people of God in redemptive history. And now it's interesting, Spurgeon, as he reflected on this, he said there was no singing in, in Egypt. There was sighing and crying and groaning and lamentation there. Think about that. 400 years of groaning under the oppression of the enemy. 400 years of sighing and crying. Spurgeon says... There was no singing there until the Lord said, I have surely heard the cry of my people. There was no singing that I know of even at the celebration of the Passover lamb, Spurgeon says. On that dreadful night when they ate the lamb in haste with their loins girded and their staffs in their hand, its first observance was upon a night almost too solemn for song. Listen to this. Spurgeon says no poet had arisen to write a lyric in which all would join. The hour of their complete deliverance had not yet fully come. They marched on steadily, but they had hardly reached the time for timbrels when they crossed the sea and the waters rolled between them and the house of bondage. Then, notice that first word, then, Exodus 15:1. then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Now, it's interesting. There have been many theologians who have tried to argue that Exodus 15 doesn't belong there. They've said it doesn't fit with the flow of the narrative. I I would argue that it fits perfectly. Notice the end of chapter 14. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord. And in his servant Moses, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Now, as we consider the central place of singing God's praises tonight, I want to note just three things. And this section really divides up very nicely into three sections. First, the song of Moses is a redemptive song of judgment. It's a redemptive song of judgment. And secondly, it is a redemptive song of salvation. And then finally, it is a redemptive song of proclamation. It is a song of judgment, salvation, and proclamation. Judgment, salvation, and proclamation. Now, usually, and we are so catered, especially if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, to sort of glib, chipper, shallow praise songs. There is a place for being glib and chipper. Let me just say that. If you're grumpy and ornery and you hate those things entirely, I'm going to tell you there is a place to be chipper. You don't get the sense that Israel's unhappy when they sing this song. You don't get the sense that they are going in with austerity. 
You don't get the sense that they're going in saying, well, it's not about emotions. It's about what we sing. No, you get the sense that a million plus people are singing so loud in the desert that it probably sounds like rolling waters. So exuberant were they that at the end of the song, Miriam does a very non-Presbyterian thing that would irk like several of you. And she gets a timbrel and pleases God by taking a timbrel and dancing and teaching the women to sing an antiphonal response to one another over the redemptive works of God. There was nothing stodgy. There was nothing squelched about the joy. And yet... We know that if we have been catered to sort of those glib songs of the 80s and 90s, that one of the things that is often missing from those hymns and songs is a sense of the judgment and the holiness of God. What's interesting about this first song of redemption is that it is full of references to God's righteous judgment. You know, If there's one thing we could redeem in the church, it would be a sense of singing even about the wrath and the judgment of God. Because, as we'll see later tonight, salvation comes through judgment. There is no salvation without God executing judgment. And we know that when we look at the cross. And yet we know that all the way back in Exodus when we look at the Red Sea crossing. The very first thing, notice That Moses sings as he sings of the judgment of God. He he leads the people. And I like to think maybe this is an antiphonal song where where Moses and the leaders of Israel would sing one line and the people would respond with another line. And notice that first line. Moses says, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. He has triumphed. What, What rouses God's people to sing his praises? It's that he has triumphed. What ought to move your heart to sing joyfully to God is that he has triumphed. Um, The psalmist is often asking God to put a new song in his mouth. And that is always intimately related to the deliverances that God has given him by executing judgment over the enemies that oppressed him. Um, You know why? We're not told about Israel singing in Egypt because they had nothing to sing about. You know why Israel didn't sing songs of joy and praise to God in Egypt? Because they were oppressed. Um, You know, I was thinking about this as I prepared for the sermon. um, And I think this is true for everyone when. You are enslaved to sin. You don't sing songs of praise to God from the heart. Notice, notice that what Moses says, I will sing to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord. When you're dead in sins and trespasses, you don't sing to the Lord. And, and even when God brings sinners under great conviction of sin, before he brings them to a place of regeneration and conversion, they don't sing his praises. It's not until they come to know the grace of God in Christ. It's not till they know what he has done to deal with their sin and to deal with Satan and to deal with the enemies that oppress and afflict God's people and hold them in bondage. It's then and it's only then. And so it is right that when Moses sings this song, he is singing, first of all, a song of God's judgment. Notice this. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Notice this. Notice verse three. The Lord is a man 
of war. The Lord is a man of war. What is central to this first part of this song is that God is a mighty warrior, that God rises up in judgment against his enemies, that God deals with a strong arm and an outstretched hand, that God afflicts those that afflict his people. Um, You know, Phil Riken makes this point, whenever God does something great, he deserves to be praised. Uh, Riken says, when Israel defeated Jabin and Sisera, Deborah and Barak sang for joy. King David sang when God delivered him from his enemies. See, that's a common theme in scripture. Whenever God delivers his people by destroying their enemies and his enemies, it ought to result in songs of praise. In fact, I would go further, and I would note that when you come to that account in 2 Chronicles 20, and maybe you don't remember this, but Israel is facing the prospect of being defeated by the Amalekites and the Moabites. And as they gather against God's people, the king uh, goes to the Lord, and the Lord tells the people to be still. Turn over, turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. I want you to look at this with me. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Notice that there Jehoshaphat goes to the Lord and the Lord answers Jehoshaphat. And and notice what the Lord says for him to do. He says in verse 15, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley. And then notice this. Verse 17, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. It's the exact same thing that Moses told Israel when they stood in between the sea and the wilderness. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. And then do you know what the people did? They started worshiping and they started singing God's praises. And as their praises went up, God defeated their enemies. You see, the defeat of God's enemies and your enemies is the first and most significant grounds of why we ought to be singing praises to him. I think that's why we love hymns like a mighty fortress is our God, because we're singing praises about him conquering his and our enemies. Um, Well, notice that there are themes in this as Moses is leading the people in this praise and some of those themes as he sings about the judgment of God. And I won't point them all out through here, but they run through this. One of them is the holiness of God. Notice, notice that. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And, and they are singing about the holiness of God. Notice verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? You see, God's otherness. God's transcendence, God's purity, God's righteousness. 
They are all grounds for the songs of God's people. And so they sing about God's holiness. Notice also all throughout this song, they sing about God's power. Notice there in verse 11 again, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? They're singing about God's power. They've, they've seen the power of God. They, they, they sing about God's power from verses 4 through verse 10 and God's destruction of Pharaoh and the chariots, the floods covering them, sending them down into the depths like a stone. Notice Notice verse 6, they sing about the power of God. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemies. They're singing about the holiness of God. They're singing about the power of God, all with respect to the judgments of God. Now, I want to encourage you this evening when you think about what ought to fill your heart with joy to God and, and I'd ask you, does the fact that God judges his enemies and your enemies fill your heart with that sort of joy it's meant to? When we look at the cross and we see what Christ did for us, that is what ought to elicit the greatest joy in our hearts to sing out loudly to God in praise. Um, if we find that we lack joy in our singing, then we've forgotten what he did at the cross in defeating our enemies. Um, when I was a very young Christian, my best friend picked me up in Asheville, North Carolina. I had just been converted, and as we drove down from Asheville to Greenville, he said, I'm going to teach you a song, and he started singing a song out of Isaiah. He gave us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for garments, the garment of Praise for the spirit of heaviness, that we might be trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And he taught me. That was the first chorus he taught me. And I remember being so overwhelmed with joy because I had just been redeemed. And I understood that God had defeated those enemies that had kept me in bondage for so long. That's that's how we ought to be moved. And, and that naturally goes into the second thing, which is. This is a song of salvation. Notice verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Moses recognizes that God's judgments on Egypt were prerequisite to and led to the greater act, the deliverance of his people. What should stir us up to sing God's praises that he has delivered us? That he has brought us from death to life, just like he brought Israel through the Red Sea and out into a place of new creation. Um, You know, it's interesting. David in the Psalms reiterates many of the themes in this first song in the Bible. And notice verse two. David actually has this at the very head of Psalm 118. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. Um, when we think about what God has done for us in Christ, it ought to make us to praise him for his mercy, his steadfast love, his covenant tenderness, his strength, that he is with us, that he's our God. Notice, notice the language, the covenantal language of verse two. The Lord is my strength, right? What did God say? I will be your God. 
and you will be my people. That was the great covenant promise that he gave to Abraham. And here are the descendants of Abraham and they're experiencing redemption. And their response is that God is their covenant God, that he is my God, my strength, my rock. Notice they are owning God as their covenant Lord. This is my God. I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. You know, by the way, and you know this, I'm I'm sort of preaching to the congregational choir, but the singing of praises is not so much for us as it is for God. When we are singing God's praises, and this first song in scripture sets out so marvelously, it is so thoroughly God-focused. It is focused on who he is. It is focused on his attributes and his character. It is focused on his covenant promises. It is focused on his mercy and his steadfast love. It is focused on his righteous judgments, but it is being sung to him. You know, here are two awesome thoughts for you tonight. The first thought is that the God that you know and that you love because he has loved you and redeemed you is a God that commands you to respond to his redemption with songs of praise. I remember as a young Christian thinking, what sort of God must he be? That of all the things he commands us, he commands us to sing praises to him. What sort of God must he be that he wants you to sing his praises? And then the second thought I want to give you tonight is that he gives you everything in scripture to sing those praises. He doesn't leave you to make them up. Everything that you find in Moses' song, the same as you find in the Psalms and in other portions of scripture and in, into the New Testament, are all the praises that God has breathed out in his word. He has told us who he is, what he's come to do, what he's done for us, who Christ is, what we have in him. He gives us everything we need to stir us up to sing praises to him. Um, You know, I want to make a special application here tonight because I think it is a true observation that in the church in our day, it is generally women who sing out and men do not. That has just been a sad reality in our day that in most churches I've been in, the women are the ones that sing out and the men are very timid in singing. Um, This was written by Moses, the mediator of the Old Covenant. It is led by a man. I would also remind you that David was a mighty warrior who killed thousands of Philistines with a sword, executing judgment. And he is called the sweet psalmist of Israel. The other night we had youth fellowship in here and we sang two hymns together. And Pastor Bailey was telling me. On the phone today, he said, Nick, that was almost all boys in that room, and I've never seen a group of children sing so loudly. What a testimony that God would work in men and women to sing his praises. And I would just exhort whatever men in here that don't like to sing. This is a manly thing to do, not in a, not in a chauvinistic sense, in a Christian sense. It is, it is glorifying to God when we sing out to him for what he's done for us both in his judgments and by way of his salvation. I love this quote. Spurgeon said this, Never had the shores of the Red Sea or any other sea heard such a song. 
There were at least 600,000 men beside women and children. What an assembly, millions making up this choir. Though their voices were little tuned to music, yet as they lifted them up, each one throwing his whole strength into the strain, it must have sounded like many waters, even when they repeated the refrain, sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Well, we have seen that it is a song of judgment. It is a song of salvation. And then thirdly, it is a song of proclamation. You know, there is a there's a missional element to our singing. Remember, I opened tonight by telling you about that boss I had and and when she went to her mother's church. And if if what she witnessed was true, that church lost a witness to her by singing dispassionately with deadness, as if they were just going through the motions. They lost a witness. But you know what? In this first song in Scripture, God actually gives us an insight into one of the main reasons he puts in his people's heart the desire to sing his praises. It is a witness to the nations. Notice verse 14. The peoples have heard. They have trembled. Now, Moses is there referring to the nations uh, around Egypt and the nations in the land to which Israel was heading. And he is noting that they had heard what God did to the Egyptians, that, that in that type of the gospel, because that's what the Exodus was, it was a type of the gospel, in a type of the gospel, the nations heard about this God. Now, what's remarkable about this is that Moses is going to lead the people in singing about the proclamation aspect of what God has done. And I think that their singing is also a witness. And and when the nations hear us singing God's praises, that is a witness to them because they don't have songs of redemption. They don't have songs that are born out of God working in their souls through what he has done for them in Christ. Um. And yet, I would also note that what Moses is saying here is far-reaching and long-reaching. What God did for Egypt had a missional aspect to it. The nations did hear. They did tremble. They did fear. They did know that the God of Israel was the true and living God. We know that because so many hundred years after this, When Israel is just starting to go into the promised land and the spies go to Rahab, the harlot, and Rahab receives those spies, the first thing she says to them is, we have heard what the Lord has done to the Egyptians. I've always thought that was remarkable. The first thing that Rahab says to the spies 400 years after God delivers Egypt is, we have heard about the gospel and about the deliverance that God has given you. Now, that means that as much as the world hates the church, the world is watching the church and the world hears about God's work in his people. And whether they acknowledge it or not, it is a testimony that God is the true and living God. And so when we sing God's praises and we exuberantly praise him for his judgments and his salvation, when we exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, that is a witness to the nations. Um, 
By the way, there are many well-meaning Christians in especially the Reformed tradition who will not sing the name of Jesus. They will only sing the Psalms, and they'll say, well, when we sing about Yahweh, we're singing about Jesus. But I want to remind you, when you go over to the book of Colossians, and the Apostle Paul is writing the church, um, among that litany of uh, commands that he gives the church, those Christian imperatives that he gives to the redeemed, he will say things like teaching one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. And then listen, the next words, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, teaching one another in psalms and spiritual songs, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. No, I think that's why. The Song of Moses, the only other time it's mentioned in Scripture, has the redemptive historical suffix added to it that it's the Song of Moses and of the Lamb. You know, when we don't sing about Christ, we are stealing mediatorial glory from him. Think about that. When we don't sing loudly and joyfully about the Lord Jesus, we're actually robbing him of mediatorial glory. We are saying, I don't need to sing about the name that is above every name. And yet the apostle commands us to sing loudly and to teach one another. What a marvelous grace it is to sing. You know, in the Reformed Church, we often talk about the centrality of the word and the sacraments, prayer and discipline. Rightly so. Rightly so. And we sometimes fail to talk about the central place of singing God's praises. That is so central. I I don't even want to imagine a gathering of God's people where we don't sing his praises. That doesn't make sense to me as somebody who's been redeemed. If he's redeemed us, we have every reason to sing his praises. Who like me, the hymn writer says, who like me, his praise should sing. Praise him, praise him. Tell of his wondrous deeds. Make his name known in the earth. Tell of his wondrous works. Sing his praises. And I love the way the psalmist sort of captures all of this for us when he says to the Lord, put a new song in my mouth, even praise to our God. And then he says, then the nations will see and will come trembling. You see, singing God's praises is a witness. It's a proclamation of what he's done. And so, in short, we should be eager to sing God's praises. We should be praying that he gives us joy in singing them. We should sing them loudly and and expressively. And we should know that that is part of our witness as Christians. We have every reason to praise God for his judgments against Satan's sin, death, and hell itself. That we have every reason to sing about the salvation that God has given us in Jesus Christ. And we have every reason to sing so that the nations might hear. And notice verse 18. I want to leave you with this. Notice this. The last verse in this line. The Lord will reign forever and ever. What, what are we going to do in glory? We're going to sing his praises and we're going to sing unhindered. There are two hymns I love lines in. One of them is. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. 
And then, and when up from death I'm free, I'll sing and joyful be. I'll sing for all eternity. I'll sing on. I'll sing on. You are going to sing for all eternity, so you better start singing now. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you. We pray that you would put a new song in our mouth. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see your mighty judgments against our enemies and your enemies. We pray that you would make us to see the gracious redemption that we have in you. We pray that you would loosen our tongues to sing your praise, O God. We pray that you would help us to sing for all of your judgments and deliverances, especially as we have them in the gospel through Christ. And Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us to sing as a witness to the world, not knowing who is watching or where they are seeing or when they might be hearing. But, oh God, we pray that you would make us to sing loudly that men and women may know that you are our God, our rock, our strength, our deliverer, our God and the God of our fathers. And so, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, please put a new song in our mouth that the nations may see and may come to you. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.